Thousands of American citizens are still in Sudan as the U.S. pulls its diplomats out of the warring country. It's Monday, April 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new rule in Missouri restricting people from gender-affirming care is set to take effect this week, but it still faces challenges in court. The goal is to erase trans people and score as much political capital while you can. Also, retailer Bed Bath & Beyond says it's going out of business as it declares bankruptcy. Plus, a rare look inside a Massachusetts program to help people transition from prison as officials seek to expand the program. Every time I wake up in the morning and like I see my friends doing good and, and everybody got their, you know, their dream houses and all these dream living, I want that, you feel me? But I'm gonna do it this way. Mostly cloudy with temperatures in the mid 50s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Jury selection starts today in the trial of a man accused of fatally shooting 11 worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue. NPR's Marie Andrusevich says survivors of the shooting and the victim's families have waited more than four years for the case to begin. If convicted, Robert Bowers could get the death penalty. The 50-year-old truck driver faces charges that include hate crimes resulting in death. Bowers offered to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence, but his request was denied. One of his attorneys is Judy Clark. She represented the Unabomber and the Boston Marathon bomber, among others. Bowers' lawyers have claimed he has schizophrenia. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reporting. A former Minnesota police officer is expected to be released from prison today. It's been two years since she fatally shot a man during a traffic stop. From Minnesota Public Radio, Matt Sepik reports, Kimberly Potter maintains she meant to fire her taser instead of her handgun. On body camera video, former police officer Kimberly Potter, who's white, is heard shouting taser but fires her gun at Dante Wright as he tries to evade arrest during an April 2021 traffic stop. Jurors convicted Potter of manslaughter for killing the 20-year-old black man who was not armed. Under Minnesota law, Potter was required to serve two-thirds of her two-year sentence in prison with the rest on supervised release. Wright's family has called the sentence, which is well below state guidelines, far too lenient. Last year, they reached a more than $3 million settlement with the city of Brooklyn Center, the Minneapolis suburb where Potter spent her 26-year career. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. The U.S. and several other countries are moving to evacuate their citizens from Sudan amid the ongoing violence. People continue to flee the capital, Khartoum, as fighting between two military factions spills into a second week. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports France is also taking its diplomats out of Sudan. France and Germany announced they have begun evacuating their nationals as well as those from other countries. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said UK forces had also evacuated diplomats and their families amid a significant escalation in violence and threats to embassy staff. The fighting broke out on April 15th between forces loyal to Sudan's army chief and his deputy-turned-rival who commands the country's paramilitary forces. The military toppled strongman Omar al-Bashir in April 2019 following mass citizen protests. The two generals seized power in a 2021 coup, but later fell out in a bitter power struggle. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. President Biden will meet three Tennessee lawmakers at the White House today. They led a protest against gun violence on the Tennessee State House floor. Two black lawmakers were expelled. The third is white and survived the expulsion vote. The expelled lawmakers were sent back to the State House by their local jurisdictions. This is NPR. 
This is WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. An Ashland woman and her young daughter are trapped in Sudan amid the rapidly escalating civil war. The family of Trillian Clifford accused the Biden administration of abandoning her and her 18-month-old daughter, along with other Americans still in Sudan. WBR's Amy Sokolow reports. Clifford's sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter of Acton, says Clifford became upset over the weekend after the U.S. evacuated its diplomats and their families, but not her and the other Americans. Winter says they have no idea when or how the mother and daughter can be evacuated. Trillian and I have been under the impression that as long as she was registered with the embassy, that they would have her back in a situation like this. Clifford's family is asking members of the Massachusetts delegation to help. Meanwhile, Clifford and her toddler Alma continue to try to stay safe inside their apartment. They've been sheltering in place for more than a week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are kicking off a nationwide bus tour today. They plan to highlight what they say are ethical lapses and partisan rulings from the Supreme Court. Senator Elizabeth Warren tells WBUR's Radio Boston that investigations showing Justice Clarence Thomas did not report gifts from a Republican billionaire for more than 20 years is a big problem. Nine justices don't feel bound, evidently, by any ethical rules except how they decide they are going to take gifts, do whatever they want to do. Warren wants Congress to pass an ethics law that applies to the high court. She also wants to consider an expansion of the court. An alert for boaters this morning. The Cape Cod Canal is closed to all marine traffic most mornings this week. That closure started this hour and remains in place until 4 p.m. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says the closure needs to happen so it can complete work on the vertical lift railroad bridge in Bourne. The Boston City Council is moving toward adopting its first-ever law to protect tree coverage in the city. The Boston Globe reports the proposed ordinance would regulate the removal of trees on both public and private land. Supporters say the plan is meant to increase the tree canopy, especially in neighborhoods most vulnerable to the impact of summer heat. Last fall, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu released an urban forest plan to expand tree coverage in the city. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at riversidecc.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. It was a weekend of wins for Boston sports. The Celtics beat Atlanta on the road last night. That gives them the, a 3-1 lead in the playoff series. Game 5 will happen at the Garden tomorrow. The Bruins took down the Florida Panthers last night. The 6-2 victory gives the Bruins the lead in the playoff series. And the Red Sox also clinched a Sunday win. The team ended the night with a 7-run victory over the Brewers in Milwaukee. The Sox head to Baltimore tonight to take on the Orioles. Mostly cloudy today with highs in the mid-50s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers before about 10 p.m. with fog moving in overnight. We'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a chance of rain in the afternoon. High temperatures in the mid-50s. It's 47 degrees in Boston. At 7.07, thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Salt Lake City today. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And hey, what are you doing in Salt Lake? I am meeting the people that work at KUER on the campus of the University of Utah. I'm going to meet uh, some listeners and also the journalists that cover Utah news and also support the National Network. Oh, that's great. So they're on the local news. We are also tracking news around the world. And the news today includes this story. Diplomats are fleeing Sudan. A lot of U.S. citizens are not fleeing that African country. Millions of Sudanese civilians also cannot go anywhere. And rival military groups are fighting in the capital city. One group supporting the government, the army, and the other is a, is a paramilitary force that's broken away. Timothy Carney knows a little of this experience because he was U.S. ambassador to Sudan in 1996, which is the last time the U.S. embassy personnel had to flee Khartoum. He's on Skype. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. How significant is it when the United States pulls down the flag there? Uh, it's it's a major and unfortunate uh, occasion. Uh, as you've said, I was part of that back in 1996. It was a huge mistake then. I can't second guess uh, what uh, the White House and Department of State did uh, on this occasion, because I'm not on the ground. I don't know what is exactly happening. But one thing's for sure there had better be some diplomats who stayed. I would hope Volker Pertes, the UN Special Representative of the Secretary General, is still there so that he can be in contact with those two military sides that are doing the fighting. In addition, of course, if some diplomats stay, it gives some hope to various nationals who've been unable to evacuate. Is the embassy there not defensible? Look, an embassy is an office building. Uh, it is not a fort. Uh, and in, in, in any case, the days of uh, fortifications uh, proof against uh, high explosives are long since gone. So no, no, no embassy is really defensible. So you can understand the decision to move people out of harm's way, but it sounds like you are fearful that this may have been a mistake, as you feel it was in the 1990s. What message does the United States send when the diplomats go? Well, the unfortunate thing is the embassy left, but some 16,000 American citizens, most of them uh, dual nationals of Sudan as well, are are there. And uh, they cannot all flee. And uh, normally, an embassy has a contingency plan for moving all of its nationals uh, in case of emergency. Uh, I gather that there's work going on to see if that plan can be put together. But in the circumstances, I really doubt it. There's just too much violence between the Sudan army and the paramilitary rapid support force. Which is the underlying problem that people are trying to address here. We heard from our correspondent elsewhere today, Emmanuel Akinwotu, who describes people in Sudan feeling abandoned by the international community, which is understandable when you hear that diplomats are getting on planes and getting out of there. Um, what can the world do to reassure Sudanese people, the Sudanese people that, that they're still with them? Well, the, the key, of course, is to see who's got the ability to add more pressure to get these two uh, warring generals to come to their senses and to realize their duty to, towards the Sudanese people themselves. Does this sound to you like a civil war? Civil war is at this point a little too strong 
because you just have the militaries engaged. I, they, there's, to the best of my knowledge, there's very little popular support for the fighting uh, uh, from the civilians themselves, more fear than anything else. And of course, suffering with uh, uh, electricity cut off, water unavailable, unless you go down to the Nile. Mm, wow. I guess we should remember that this seems to have come out of a dispute about merging the two armed forces. So we can hope, I suppose, that it remains uh, a personal or power struggle rather than a broader civil war. Ambassador, thank you so much. You're welcome. Timothy Carney served as U.S. ambassador to Sudan in the mid-1990s. He joined us via Skype. This week, a new rule in Missouri would severely restrict gender-affirming health care for transgender kids and adults. It's the first of its kind in the country and is expected to trigger a lawsuit. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum reports. Chelsea Friel spent part of 2023 testifying in the Missouri legislature against bills barring transgender youth like her from accessing what's known as gender-affirming care. It's an ethical obligation to go. Over and over and over again, the 17-year-old heard GOP legislators talk about how they had to protect her. And whenever she heard that argument, Friel says she responded like this. Protect me from what? I mean, oh no, the kid is getting better grades. Oh no, the scary transgender has friends. What are they going to do, smile? Missouri has been one of a number of states seeking to prevent minors from accessing puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and gender transition surgeries. And despite Friel's and others conveying how gender-affirming care has made them profoundly happier, state lawmakers have been poised to pass some sort of ban, though likely a less restrictive one than other GOP states. But then came a bombshell. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey put forward emergency rules placing barriers to gender-affirming care to minors and adults. And even though the guidelines amounted to a departure from the GOP rhetoric around protecting kids, they came as no surprise to Friels. The goal is to erase trans people and score as much political capital while you can. Attorney General Bailey says the rules are about making people more informed before they decide to get gender-affirming care. And the stipulations are not minor. Before an adult can get hormone therapy or gender transition surgery, they would need to get hours of talk therapy, have three years of documented gender dysphoria, and ensure mental health issues are, quote, treated and resolved. Here's Bailey talking about his rules. I'm proud that this is an innovative approach to protecting the health care of patients and making sure that mental health patients have informed consent and have all the information necessary to make good decisions. Healthcare experts like Brandon Hill of Milwaukee-based Vibant Health concur that what Bailey is doing is unprecedented. His agency provides health care, including gender-affirming care, primarily to LGBTQ people. Even though the attorney general's rules exempt people who are already receiving care, Hill says they're onerous enough to keep treatments out of reach for all transgender Missourians. When we move into the adult space, this is saying that your government gets to decide your existence and in what way you can access readily available medications that have been used for decades. The rules are slated to go into effect later this week unless there's an injunction. But there are some signs that they may be a bridge too far for some Republicans, including Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. 
I don't think it's government's role to tell adults, generally speaking, how they spend their own money. And some LGBTQ advocates hope that the issue will backfire on Republicans, especially as younger voters turn 18 and go to the polls. And Chelsea Friel says her generation can help turn back efforts that could affect people like her. Make no mistake, we will probably lose this battle, but we will win the war. The problem is how many casualties and how many bodies lay dead before we get there. But Friels won't be in Missouri much longer to see if that backlash comes to pass. As a soon-to-be adult, she's heading to college in the near future, and she's crossed off Missouri schools from her list. For NPR News, I'm Jason Merzenbaum in St. Louis. As many people know, voicemail is all but dead, but a variation of it is doing just fine. People send each other short voice messages instead of sending text messages. Instead of writing, you can talk, and instead of writing LOL, you can actually laugh. NPR's Emma Bowman sent us a memo. Hope Sloop and Bobby Miller first met on TikTok. They've known each other for less than a year, and because they live on opposite coasts, they rarely see each other in person. But their friendship has unfolded over voice messages, Sloop says. We probably send each other 10 to 50 a day. It's a lot. Voice notes are more personal than regular texts, says Miller. We're able to like hear the shared joy in each other's voice, or if we're going through something, like sometimes in texts, the gravity of the situation doesn't always get relayed. The 24-year-olds are among their Gen Z cohort who use voice notes frequently. Over 40% of people between ages 18 and 29 use the feature at least weekly, according to a recent survey conducted by Vox. It's not just Gen Z. 30% of Americans surveyed are voice messaging often. Elder millennial Kate Siver uses voice messages to keep her six-year-old in touch with her grandparents. Hi, Grandma. I was wondering how you were doing today. It is a good day to pair in the snow. Bye. Research shows you don't even have to like voice notes to appreciate their health benefits. Assistant Professor Amit Kumar at the University of Texas in Austin studies happiness and well-being. We tend to form stronger bonds with people when we hear what they have to say compared to simply reading text. You can hear someone's intonation, how much variance there is in the pitch of their voice, for instance, which can communicate that you're interacting with a thinking and feeling human being. So why not just pick up the phone? Here's Miller again. It's a lot of weird, like, red tape and etiquette, I think, around phone calls. There's just that, like, dead air of figuring out, is the conversation going to continue? But if there's an etiquette to voice notes, Miller shuns it. It's why Sloop calls her friends long meandering voice notes, Bobby podcasts. Every time I've ever gotten a four minute, three minute podcast voice message, it's always like, "Mm, let me grab my little popcorn. We're going to listen in. It's going to have a beginning, middle and end. It's a storytelling experience. (laughs) And this has been my voice note to you. Emma Bowman, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in about four minutes on Morning Edition, how descendants of Confederate General Robert E. Lee are trying to reconcile with the descendants of the people his family enslaved. Then at 740, the retailer Bed Bath & Beyond is going out of business. We hear about what led to its downfall. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. More than 2,100 people may be fraudulently working as nurses across the U.S. after allegedly buying fake degrees. When we talk about a nurse's education and credentials, Shortcut is not a word we want to use. I'm Elsa Chang. How the scandal is sending shockwaves through the nursing community. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We're starting out with a little fog this morning. It'll be partly sunny today with a high of 56. There's a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, another slight chance of showers as temperatures fall to a low of 42. Tomorrow, about the same as today, partly sunny and a high of 55 with a chance of showers in the late afternoon. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 721. Check out the new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. It's called Violation, and it tells the story of two families families and an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. A discussion about race and how we tell our national stories is taking place at the National Memorial to Robert E. Lee. Descendants of the Confederate general gathered over the weekend with the descendants of the people the Lee family once enslaved. NPR's Debbie Elliott brings us this story from Virginia. This was the first time for most of these descendants to meet in person after two years of Zoom conversations known as the Family Circle. You're taller than I thought. Oh my God. They've come from all over the country, like this retired teacher from California. I am Cecilia Gillum Torres, great great granddaughter of Selena Gray and Thornton Gray. And I'm on this committee, the Family Circle, to bring back the memories of our ancestors as well as reconcile with the family that enslaved them. Selena Gray was the personal servant to Robert E. Lee's wife, Mary Custis Lee, at Arlington House. To show how deep the roots are here, Mrs. Lee inherited the plantation home, surrounding land, and the enslaved African-Americans working there from her father, George Washington Park Custis, 
He was Martha Washington's grandson. This is the first time Cecilia Torres has been back here since she was a child. Back then, she says, she got a sanitized take on the family history. My grandmother kept trying to push it on us when she would bring us up here. That's your, that's your great-great-grandmother's house. She was kind of like a maid to Mrs. Lee. That's what she called it. Yeah. She didn't say a slave. Mm -hmm. For decades, there was little public acknowledgement of the enslaved people who cared for Arlington House. But in the last few years, the National Park Service has created a more inclusive experience, like restoring the cramped slave quarters where Selena and Thornton Gray lived with their eight children. How is how 10 people going to sleep in here? Not happening. Torres is overwhelmed by it all. Ooh, chills. I, I'm... I... It's spooky in a way, but it's also reassuring because I know it's real. I know my great-great-grandmother, she made this thing happen. You know, she took care of this house and cleaned it for years, for like 30 years. So I feel very, you know, like she's here. And she's, and she's glad I'm here too, too. Oh, happy day. The celebration Saturday drew about 100 people. We are at the first ever reunion of descendants of this space. The MC is Stephen Hammond, a docent and descendant of the enslaved Syfax family. To have these families be apart and go on their separate ways for 160 years, and then to be able to come back together to start a conversation about you know, our lives and what we can do and accomplish together is extremely powerful. He's working with the National Park Service to honor the legacy of the families enslaved at Arlington House. During renovations two years ago, the agency helped start the Family Circle Dialogue, bringing together descendants of everyone who had a role here. I am General Lee's great-great-grandson, and I am Robert E. Lee V. He goes by Rob Lee. His sister is Tracy Lee Crittenberger. At first, they were surprised that descendants of the enslaved families wanted to get to know them, but have found the conversations fruitful. I think the fact that everybody was so gracious and everyone really just looked at, who are you right now? Who is sitting, you know, Zoom across from me? Um, and we started from there. And then your story is your story, but what your ancestors did doesn't have to necessarily impact who you are. I think we're, <laughs> people would like to paint us as a certain way, being General Lee's grandchildren, but th that's not how at all we were raised to be. The work is being guided by Susan Glisson, a Mississippi historian who has worked for years to help disparate groups reckon with the country's fraught racial history. It's happening as some conservative politicians are pushing laws that would restrict frank discussions of race. Glisson says it's significant that Robert E. Lee, the Confederate figure so revered by some and loathed by others, can be the catalyst for this work. These families refuse to allow him to be a figure of division and instead take the opportunity to come together and grapple with hard history and find the family tie that exists. Some of the newfound relationships have been transforming. Sarah Fleming calls it a gift. Her fourth great-grandfather was Robert E. Lee's uncle. I guess I'm a shirt-tail cousin to Arlington House. <laughs> um, and uh, we all grew up being very excited that we were connected to the Lees. 
We also grew up knowing slavery was horrible, but the family didn't talk about the space in between, that the Lees were enslavers. Providing a forum to explore that space holds promise, says Stephen Hammond, among the organizers of the dialogues. I think this opportunity is presented that allows our country to repair itself and to heal. The group is pushing to change the official designation of Arlington House to drop Robert E. Lee's name and make it a National Historic Site that embraces the full history here. It will take an act of Congress. Lee's direct descendants support the name change. Rob Lee. Honestly, I don't feel like we're taking the name away. I think when you call it the Arlington House, you're just opening it up to more of the families who live there, honestly. And I think it's just more appropriate. Seeing all the descendant families unite Saturday was moving for Leah Coleman, an African-American park ranger at Arlington House. I mean, I'm very overwhelmed with emotion, um, just seeing all of these people come together in this moment at this site. It, it just symbolizes hope for me, um, hope for our country, because if they can do it, we all can do it. Organizers say they want to see this historic descendant reunion become a yearly celebration. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Arlington, Virginia. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, a new NPR polls shows that most Americans support continued access to the abortion pill mifepristone. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is praising the U.S. military for its successful evacuation of nearly 100 American staff from the U.S. Embassy in Sudan's capital. The Pentagon says American special forces were on the ground in Khartoum for less than an hour on Saturday to complete the evacuation. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu says thousands of American citizens remain in Sudan. The State Department says it's assisting these citizens who are trying to flee, largely with up-to-date information and advice on routes out of Khartoum and the country. And we're seeing other countries, many other countries, ramp up their evacuations. Many people, especially foreign nationals, are trying to get to Port Sudan on the Red Sea. That's a transit point out of the country. But many of them have to get there on their own. More than 400 people have been killed in Sudan and thousands injured since fighting broke out less than two weeks ago. The country's military is battling members of a paramilitary group for control of the country. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is on a two-day trip to Japan ahead of his expected run for the White House in 2024. Earlier today, the governor met with Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Tokyo, where trade was a major focus. We see a lot of opportunities to build on our business uh, and economic ties. After Japan, DeSantis plans to travel to South Korea, Israel and Britain.
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts leaders say the fight over the abortion drug mifepristone is far from over. The Supreme Court's order Friday keeps the drug available for now, and surgical and medication abortion remain legal in Massachusetts. But former Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley says the state law could still face legal challenges. States may come after providers in Massachusetts if they believe Massachusetts providers have violated their own state law. So although there's a stay, there's the status quo for the moment. It's just one battle in many that are going to continue for a while. Coakley says the Supreme Court will ultimately have the final word. Virtual communication during the pandemic led to greater mental health issues among adults aged ages 65 and older. That's according to new research from Brigham and Women's Hospital. The study found 23 percent of older adults who relied on connecting with friends, family and physicians through phone and email or virtual visits instead of in person felt depressed. 28 percent reported feelings of anxiety. Dr. Rebecca Robbins was the study's author. She says technology may not suit the needs of older adults. And so using these technologies was frustrating, was not efficient, and especially if they had a pressing medical concern in the case of doctor-patient communication, potentially further contributed to concerns about the COVID-19 pandemic and their feeling of, of loneliness. Robin says older adults should be at the table when technology platforms are created so their needs are considered. Coyote sightings are increasing in the North Shore, and Salem residents say the animals are getting bolder. Salem police say reports of coyotes are more frequent and some appear comfortable approaching people and pets. Last year, the town of DeHaan authorized federal wildlife services to kill coyotes in that community. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and new work by Boston Ballet Principal Kristen Fentroy at Citizens Bank Opera House, May 19th, bostonballet.org. And the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, flexible, rigorous, relevant, help manage data and insights to shape industry, bc.edu slash analytics. The Boston Celtics are pulling ahead in their playoff series against Atlanta. The Seas beat the Hawks last night on the road with a final score of 129 to 121. The teams will face off again in Game 5 tomorrow at TD Garden. The Bruins also skated their way to a playoff victory. They outscored the Panthers by four goals in Florida. The Bees will return to home ice Wednesday for Game 5. Finally, the Red Sox are also celebrating a win. They beat the Brewers 12 to 5 last night in Milwaukee. The Sox will play on the road again tonight in Baltimore. In your forecast, mostly cloudy and mid-50s today. There's a slight chance of rain late this afternoon and this evening. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s. Then tomorrow, a repeat of today. We'll have mostly cloudy skies and mid-50s with a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston. At 734, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, Reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez at KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. We have a report now on an unpopular institution. Uh, which one? Because that line doesn't really narrow it down. The president's approval rating is below 50 percent. Support for Congress, extremely low. And now it would seem the Supreme Court's popularity is sliding, too. Last Friday, the court preserved access to an abortion drug for now. But that's not the last word on yet another divisive case. And today, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows that the original lower court decision to ban mefepristone is far out of step with the American public. NPR senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been tracking this. Hey there, Domenico. Hey, Steve. How unpopular is the idea of banning access to medication abortion? Yeah, well, this was a pretty big finding because 64% of respondents said that they are against laws that ban access to a medication abortion. And that includes actually a majority of Republicans. Hmm. That might tell you why there's been such a big split among Republicans on this issue. You know, post-Dobbs, this has been a whole new world politically, and Republicans really have not figured out how to message on abortion after 50 years of clamoring for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. What do voters say when asked if judges should be the ones to decide uh, whether FDA approvals of drugs are overturned here? Well, they are definitely against that. 61% said that judges should not be able to overturn FDA approvals. And again, there's another divide among Republicans. 51% of Republicans said that they should be able to do that, but a significant percentage, 45%, said that they should not. There's a split here among how Republican candidates feel on this, too. You know, former President Trump, uh, who's the frontrunner for the GOP nomination right now, has essentially punted, said it's a states' rights issue, but his former Vice President, Mike Pence, was critical of that stance over the weekend while at a conservative conference in Iowa. And Pence said this about Mifepristone to CBS's Face the Nation. I'd like to see this medication off the market to protect the unborn, but also I, I have deep concerns about the way the FDA went about approving Mifepristone 20 years ago. Well, most Americans, as we're noting, uh, disagree with that. Well, what are Americans saying about the court itself? It has this six to three conservative majority. Uh, it is issuing rulings that a lot of Americans would like, a lot of Americans would dislike, and it's done so in a very kind of out there tone that has been described often as partisan. What do people think about that? Well, the court used to be one of the most revered institutions in American life, but really not anymore. We've been seeing the steady and continued decline in confidence in the court. Our poll found that six in 10 said they don't have very much or no confidence at all in the court. Mm. Just 37% said that they have a great deal or good amount of confidence in it. Maris has been asking this question for about the last five years, and the 62% who said they don't have much confidence in the court is the lowest they've recorded. You know, think about that. 62% have little confidence or none at all in the institution that has the final say on all of the most controversial issues in American society. Guns, health care, abortion rights, LGBTQ rights, voting rights, affirmative action, how police interact with their communities, you name it. And the judges making those decisions, the justices, there are relatively few of them and they don't change very often because of the lifetime appointments. Yeah, and we asked about that, too, and most Americans think that should change. 68% said the justices should only serve for a limited time. Only 30% said they think they should serve as long as they want. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks as always. You're so welcome. Known for its coupons and floor-to-ceiling displays of pillows, curtains, and kitchen gadgets, Bed Bath & Beyond has outfitted many college dorms and first homes. Now it's going out of business. Store closing sales begin on Wednesday. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports on its downfall. 
If you've been to Bed Bath & Beyond lately, you've seen the signs. A sparse selection of brands you don't recognize. A cul-de-sac of home decor sitting empty, except for some tired-looking mirrors on sale. I'll be honest, I was taken a bit aback because, like, there were sections that were just missing. Daniel Callahan from Louisville, Kentucky, popped in a few months ago and found it eerie. I remember when, like, the Circuit City closing and the Sears closing, and this kind of had the same feeling to it. He was right. The store closed within weeks. Just a decade ago, Bed Bath & Beyond seemed unstoppable, called a category killer for dominating in home goods. Now it enters bankruptcy distraught and turbulent. It's gone through leadership shakeups, failed turnarounds, a rise and crash as a meme stock, all while running out of shoppers and money. Beneath this chaos, the chain has faced a fundamental question. In a world that shops online, swarmed by competitors, where does it fit? Identity crisis is actually, I think, a key word. Beth Grossfeld worked in Bed Bath Marketing for 13 years, until 2019. Back then, the chain had about 1,500 stores, having ballooned from its origins as a New Jersey retailer from the 70s. It survived the Great Recession, outlived its main rival, Linens and Things, then bought Bye Bye Baby, The World Market, online retailer One King's Lane. Its stores had a secret weapon. Local managers got to decide what to stock for their shoppers. It was that floor-to-ceiling, stack them high and watch them fly. It was kind of our motto. You came in, you found what you wanted, and 10 other things. The customers loved it. And then there was the iconic Big Blue coupon for 20% off, which became so stitched into the cultural fabric that the FBI found one in the kitchen drawer of mobster Whitey Bulger. TV show Broad City built a whole subplot around it. Bed Bath & Beyond coupons never expire. They have expiration dates on Yeah. To, to throw idiots off. But over time, Bed Bath faced intense competition from Amazon and Target, Wayfair and West Elm. Former officials describe a company lost in search of its niche. It tried to go big on furniture. It started selling jewelry. Its website felt dizzying. Here's former marketing manager Grossfeld. We really were um, going through kind of a crisis of trying to compete with our ever-growing competitors. And never catching up. One of the founders recently told the Wall Street Journal Bed Bath, quote, missed the boat on the Internet. In 2019, activist investors forced out long-running leadership and brought on a Target executive. And he pushed to declutter stores and go all in on private brands, which are more profitable. The timing proved disastrous. Big brands like KitchenAid and Calphalon went missing from Bed Bath shelves right as the pandemic began. The chain missed out on the historic home decorating shopping spree. Soon the company was closing stores and cutting jobs. They've made operational missteps, which have yielded financial missteps. David Silverman tracks retail at Fitch Ratings. The company is at a point where they can't really invest in sort of anything to turn around their fortunes. Bed Bath began warning of a bankruptcy in January. It struggled to pay lenders and suppliers, leading to more empty shelves. At one point, its stock cost 24 cents. Leadership tried every financial Hail Mary, getting lifelines from banks and investors. But now the rescues are running out, and Bed Bath is staring into the great beyond. Alina Selyuk, NPR News.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, we get a rare look inside a Massachusetts program to help people transitioning from prison as officials ask the state for funding to expand the program. In your forecast, mostly cloudy in mid-50s today with a slight chance of showers. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Local Bed Bath & Beyond stores are set to close after the company filed for bankruptcy over the weekend. The company has 10 stores in Massachusetts. That includes locations in Somerville, Hingham, and Braintree. Bed Bath & Beyond officials say they expect all stores to close by the end of June. There's a new restaurant at Patriot Place in Foxborough, Axel and Byrne, opened over the weekend. The restaurant is the newest from Sean and Sue Olson. They opened Salt and Stone in Somerville last year. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts public safety officials did something unusual recently. They invited people into a state prison to demonstrate their efforts to help those being released from state custody. The visit came as the Department of Correction makes its case for an overall budget increase. It's also asking for more money for reentry programs that help people transition to life outside prison. WBWAR's Deborah Becker reports. In a classroom at the Boston Pre-Release Center in Roslindale, instructor Aaron Bray is teaching a course called Philosophy of Justice. Using a real court case, he asks the students why so many of them would not testify against a police officer who had done something wrong. You can't testify even against dirty cops? Many of the group members say even if their testimony would reduce their prison sentences, they wouldn't testify because that would mean they were a rat. That person's still considered a rat if they, if they do that? Definitely. Okay. About half of these students know the criminal legal system firsthand. They've been incarcerated and are about to leave prison. The other half are Brandeis University students participating in what's called the School of Reentry. It's a seven-year-old program that provides education and training to men shortly before they're released from prison. The goal of this college-level class is to provide a deep understanding of the criminal legal system and help the incarcerated students reflect on their own involvement in it. 43-year-old Roberto Rivera entered the school in 2020, earned his high school equivalency, and went on to get a certificate in automotive technology. When I graduated my certificate, well, I can really have a career. 
not just a regular job, but a career. Rivera was released from prison four months ago, but has continued his education and is expected to get his associate degree soon. Every time I wake up in the morning and like I see my friends doing good and, and everybody got their, you know, their dream house and all this dream living, I want that. You feel me? But I'm going to do it differently now. State correction officials are seeking to double the number of men in the school of reentry to work with 50 at a time. Instructor Lisa Millwood says the year to year and a half long program is immersive and includes helping the men access other services such as housing and health care. And so we make sure that is every day, all year round, um, and really helping them to understand what led to your incarceration, what are we doing differently right now, and what direction do we want to go in in the future to make sure that we don't slide back? Because we know that that, you know, that tends to happen. The Department of Correction says 161 men have gone through the program since it began. Millwood says the overall recidivism or reoffending rate of her students is less than 10 percent. That's compared with the average rate of about 30 percent of all Massachusetts prisoners who return to state custody in three years. And last year, more than 2,000 people were released from state prisons. State Correction Commissioner Carol Meachie says even more programming is needed so people don't end up back in state custody. The department needs to do better before people walk out the door. And the best way to reduce recidivism and make somebody successful on the outside is through education. Governor Maura Healy is proposing $10 million for reentry and educational programming for prisoners in her budget for the next fiscal year. Also, state lawmakers are considering a bill that would require more programming and vocational training for prisoners. The department's total proposed budget for the next fiscal year is more than $800 million, up almost 5 percent over the current year's budget. Prisoners advocates say even more money is needed for programming, and it should start well before someone is released. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a couple minutes, pianist Laura Downs talks about her new album, Love at Last. It features 24 works by composers from around the world. And at 810, eight Republican candidates for presidents addressed the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition this weekend, and many at the gathering said they would stand by former President Donald Trump. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Authorities in Texas are searching for a motive in a shooting that killed nine teens at a prom after party yesterday. A Massachusetts woman and her young child are among thousands of Americans who remain in Sudan, even as the U.S. pulls diplomats out of the warring country.
And members of Massachusetts' congressional delegation will be in downtown Boston this morning to kick off a nationwide bus tour highlighting what they call ethical issues with the Supreme Court. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Mid-50s today under mostly cloudy skies. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. The highest praise composer and pianist Duke Ellington gave for music or people was to say they were beyond category. And if he were here, he'd surely say that about Laura Downs. She is a pianist, but also a producer, curator, and advocate who spent years promoting and performing works by artists who didn't get the recognition they deserved in their own time, often because of their race or gender. And her new album is called Love at Last. Laura Downs told me she chose most of these pieces during the isolation of the pandemic. Some of the music was written for me during that time. Some of it was music that I found uh, because I was kind of looking for music of purpose and message. But I think that the main impetus was my awareness that when we kept talking about unprecedented times, that that wasn't true, that everything we were experiencing was precedented and this music was illustrating that. The oldest piece on this album was written at the turn of the 17th century during a time of pandemic. Sleepers Awake. That was really, really clear to me that I could take this music and really show cycles of history and, you know, the ins and outs of tragedy and chaos and the possibility always for new beginnings. start the album with a short piece called Dawn, which is also mm-hmm. just a, a very brief piece, but with a, a big story behind it. I mean, it's a little pop tune. It was written by a composer named Yaroslav Jezek, a Czech composer who was born around the turn of the 20th century. And that tune was played every morning on the radio in Prague during the Nazi occupation. It was kind of a secret message of resistance, you know, that there would be a new dawn, there would be a brighter day. I came across that tune some years ago. I was invited to play a concert at the Czech Embassy in D.C. And I just thought it was, you know, a a sweet little tune. And I played that piece and everyone in the room was in tears
And that spoke to me that moment of like inherited meaning, right? That mm. probably everyone in that room had experience of this piece handed down through their parents or grandparents. This idea that music travels and carries with it its own time and then translates that into ours, that to me is just so incredibly powerful and beautiful. Of the 24 pieces on this album, some of those are from historical composers like the one we've talked about, but you've also worked with quite a few contemporary composers. Could you talk a little bit about how you chose them, the relationships that you had with them? One of the really lovely things that happened during the pandemic, music was just showing up for me. I remember my birthday in 2021, I received two pieces of music from composer friends who just were thinking of me and wrote these pieces as little messages of comfort. Music is able to do that, right? You pour your grief, all your emotions into music and you create something beautiful. And so to harness all that beauty into this one album, it's really just a testament, I think, to the hope and the, and the growth that comes out of times like these. Nobody sends me music on my birthday. I feel kind of hard done by, but okay. <laughs> I will. Okay, well, that. thank you. It's coming up, so get busy. But okay. Uh, but, <laughs> so many of the stories behind these pieces, they were born in times of tragedy or pain. or Absolutely. But, but yeah. you've also put this album together at a time when... We are very aware of a lot of the suffering in the world. You know, Europe is once again at war, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic and so many of these other things. And I'm just wondering, did you think of this album as kind of an answer to that? Or do you think of it as an escape from that? What do you think? Oh, wow. I don't know that it's either of those things. It's clearly not an answer, except to remind us again that nothing is unprecedented. In terms of the tragedies that we are witnessing, you know, we have this incredibly intimate lens on all of the human suffering in the world. We see it all day, every day on our little screens. And what I notice is the core humanity in there. You know, that yes, there's a country at war and within that country at war, there are mothers caring for their children, you know, and there are strangers helping each other. Within all the terribleness is goodness. Hmm. I mean, that's what's echoed in the poem that inspired the album that was written by a poet named Shaul Chernikovsky in 1894 in Odessa, um, somebody who was about to live through two world wars and see the worst things you know, that humans can do to each other. But he was a young man when he wrote this poem. And it begins like this. Laugh at all my dreams, my dearest. Laugh and I repeat anew that I still believe in man as I still believe in you. Let the time be dark with hatred. I believe in years beyond, love at last shall bind all people in an everlasting bond. Laura Downs, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Michelle. It's such a pleasure. Laura Downs' new album is called Love at Last, and NPR Music just posted a tiny desk concert featuring Laura. You can check that out at nprmusic.org. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA, a major exhibition the Globe calls breathtaking, now on view, icaboston.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Americans, including a Massachusetts mother and toddler, remain in Sudan even after the U.S. evacuated diplomats and staff as fighting there continues. It's Monday, April 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, survivors are bracing themselves as jury selection begins today for the man accused of killing 11 worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. We need to be there, but we can't put ourselves through a living hell of being in a trial situation every day for months. Also this morning, we preview next month's elections in Turkey in which six opposition parties have combined forces against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Plus, a new study shows the meat supply is one cause of urinary tract infections that lead to about $2 billion in medical costs each year. In sports, the Celtics, Bruins and Red Sox win, mostly cloudy in mid-50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korova Coleman. Foreign governments continue extracting their diplomats and other citizens out of Sudan. Fighting has moved into a second week between two Sudanese army generals battling each other for control. The EU's foreign policy chief, Yosef Borrell, says the international community is pressuring both generals to stop fighting. We have to continue pushing for a political settlement. We cannot afford that Sudan, which is a very populated country, uh, implodes because it will be sending shockwaves around the whole Africa. Relief groups say more than 400 people have been killed in Sudan and thousands injured. The toll is likely higher as the fighting makes it difficult to claim bodies that are in the streets. The House is expected to vote on a Republican-backed bill this week that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the measure would lift the borrowing limit in exchange for deep cuts in federal government spending, something opposed by Democrats. The tit-for-tat battle over the nation's finances has been dragging on for months. Democrats in both the House and Senate have argued that attaching a bill to lift the borrowing limit to cuts in government spending is a non-starter. Instead, they're pushing to pass a clean debt ceiling bill, something that was done three times under the previous administration. Republicans introduced a plan to raise the debt ceiling last week that's contingent on spending cuts, including much of President Biden's climate and social services law. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been working to get members of his caucus on board with his plan. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Closing arguments are scheduled to begin today in the seditious conspiracy trial against several members of the far-right group, the Proud Boys. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the defendants argue there was no plan to storm the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. 
Lawyers for the former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio and four other defendants say they had no agreement to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election. Two members of the far-right group, Zach Reel and Dominic Pizzola, took the witness stand near the end of the trial. Prosecutors say the men sought to overthrow the government by using force and leveraging a mob of thousands of other people on the Capitol grounds. Jurors may not begin their deliberations until Tuesday in the long-running trial. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Jury selection starts today in Pittsburgh for the federal trial of a man accused of shooting and killing 11 people at a synagogue in 2018. Robert Bowers had earlier offered to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence, but that offer was denied. Prosecutors allege Bowers harbored deep hatred toward all Jewish people. His lawyers have recently said Bowers has schizophrenia and brain impairments. You're listening to NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren, along with Representative Ayanna Presley, begin a national tour today calling for reforms of the U.S. Supreme Court. The members of the state's congressional delegation will make 20 stops, highlighting what they call ethical lapses in the court. They kick off their tour with an event this morning in downtown Boston, This month, it was revealed that Justice Clarence Thomas did not report lavish gifts for about 20 years. The local construction industry is kicking off a week-long event to help workers with substance use disorder and mental health issues. Tom Gunning is the executive director of the Building Trades Employers Association. He says the third annual Building Trades Recovery Week aims to let workers know there's a program to help them. Maybe it's treatment. Maybe it's just meeting with a counselor from time to time. Maybe it's detox. It could be a variety of options. Every, everybody's different. Gunning says construction workers have one of the highest rates of substance use disorder compared to other employees. Boston is commissioning new murals across the city, and Mayor Michelle Wu has announced a consultant to lead the effort. WBUR's Ariel Gray has more. The public art organization Street Theory Incorporated has helped transform Boston through murals since 2016. As the city's consultant, it will oversee the creation of over 20 new murals. Boston's director of public art, Karen Goodfellow, says it's an important step. Street Theory is an incredible partner in bringing forward and supporting the best local artists that we have. And, you know, not just the best local, but, you know, the best artists who we are thrilled to be able to be neighbors and in community with. The three-year contract totals over $3.5 million. It's the largest investment the mayor's Office of Arts and Culture has ever made into public art. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. Shuttle buses will replace parts of the Blue Line this week, starting tonight. The bus service will operate between Government Center and Wonderland, starting at 8 p.m. through the end of service. The T says closures are needed as crews work to replace the tracks. It's 8.06. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live, with books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events, more at anunlikelystory.com. The Celtics won their playoff game against the Atlanta Hawks last night by eight points. The teams have the night off before Game 5 tomorrow at TD Garden. 
The Bruins also skated their way to a playoff victory. They outscored the Panthers by four goals in Florida. The Red Sox are also celebrating a win. They beat the Brewers 12-5 last night in Milwaukee. The Sox will play on the road again tonight, this time in Baltimore. Mostly cloudy today with highs in the mid-50s. Tonight, a slight chance of showers before about 10 p.m. with fog moving in overnight. We'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a chance of rain in the afternoon. High temperatures in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston. At 8.07, thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez from KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. In the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, Iowa will once again vote first when it holds its caucuses early next year. This past weekend, though, the first big multi-candidate event was hosted by the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition. That's an organization of conservative Christian voters. The mix of candidates included former President Trump, who joined via live stream, former VP Mike Pence, who was there in person, as were a host of others, many of them names maybe you've never heard of. You have, though, heard of NPR's Don Gagne, who was also there. He joined now from Des Moines. Uh, Don, these events are often called cattle calls because there are a lot of participants. So who was there and what do they focus on? Well, unsurprisingly, abortion was a common theme with many candidates saying they would be the best on that big issue. So let's start with Trump. He's actually come under fire by some anti-abortion groups lately because he says it's up to states now to decide such things. Just leave it to the states. So he used this speech to remind people that he is the guy who deserves the credit for Roe v. Wade being gone in the first place. I face down vile attacks to confirm our three great Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. It's a sign the GOP is still figuring out how to message around abortion. And Mike Pence actually got in on it, too. On one hand, he praises Trump for his court appointees, but he also made it clear that he is the far tougher anti-abortion crusader. This clip is from a brief news conference he held at the event. But I don't agree with the former president who says this is a state's only issue. I mean, we've been given a new beginning for life in this country. And let me note here, Pence is not yet officially a candidate. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who's also exploring running, was there. Remember, Scott is not that well known in Iowa or around the country, and he's basically introducing himself. And he did so over the weekend in the style of a Baptist preacher. If you believe that we should educate our children and not indoctrinate our kids, let me hear you say, if you believe we need a little more ABCs and a little less CRT, let me hear you scream. Hallelujah. Let me also tell you who was not there. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had a conflict, as did former Ambassador Nikki Haley. Other big-name potential candidates like Chris Christie weren't there either. So something felt like it was missing. But that did provide an opportunity for the unknowns who are running. And here's one example. I'm Vivek Ramaswamy. I'll tell you something. I was born in 1985. I'm 37 years old. I'm the first millennial to ever run for president as a Republican. Thank you. 
Thank you for that. Ramaswamy is an entrepreneur and author who says the GOP needs to connect with young voters. He says he can do that and that a conservative message will work with those voters. All right. Now, Don, this is a contested primary. Lots of candidates or potential candidates, as you point out. But uh, Donald Trump loves to remind anyone who will listen that he is currently way, way, way ahead in the polls. So how does that affect the vibe at an event like this? Let me just give you one example. At one point, Mike Pence was working the room, shaking hands, squeezing between tables, uh, taking selfies with people, like, you know, like a real celebrity. But when you talk to people after their moment, their selfie with the former vice president, you get something like this from voter Connie DeAnda of Mason City. You said you're not a big fan. Yes, yeah, because of what happened January 6th. I mean... I felt like there was fraud in the election. I felt like he could have done something more on that day to support our president, and he didn't step up to the plate. And that's really the Trump effect. You feel it in the room, the sense that this looks like a traditional big campaign event, one where you've got lots of hopefuls. And traditionally, there'd be some buzz, people wondering if but one of these candidates, somebody on the stage might really impress or maybe break through and get some momentum. But you sure don't feel anything like that yet this year. I talked to retired farmer Ron Partlow, and he says he's got nothing against any of these other Republicans. But, well, just listen. We're going downhill. The whole country's going downhill. We've lost ground the past three, four years. Yeah, we need Trump. We need somebody back in there to straighten this thing out. So in the room, you really get this strong sense of the loyalty to Donald Trump. And, and that's not shocking. And I did find some people who were undecided. Uh, they're waiting to see. But mostly you found people ready to stand by Trump uh, through indictments, through what they see as unfair attacks in the media, uh, through whatever may come down the pipe in the next you know, coming months. And they express great pride at being on his side. All right, that's NPR's Don Gagne in Des Moines. Don, thanks. It's my pleasure. Turkey is holding its own election campaign. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is back on the ballot next month. During 20 years in power, he has gained from a divided opposition. Now they've joined forces in hopes of defeating him. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul. 64-year-old Alatin Aram says he doesn't know a lot about the coalition known as the Table of Six, but he likes the idea of several parties banding together to defeat Erdogan. Yes, the alliance table. I also think that's a good thing. I hope it can continue for a while. Addressing the issues won't happen overnight. It will take time. Yes, I think the number one issue is the economy. Some younger voters say they're voting for the coalition because they're desperate for a change after two decades of Erdogan's ruling party in power. 24-year-old Ibrahim Iper says if the opposition wins, its first priority should be to, quote, fix our democracy. He says that's not something he would entrust to Erdogan. Our position is difficult for Turkey because this government is right now make everything difficult. We want to change because we are young. Young people want to change this position. But economical or political, we don't like it. Analyst Sinan Ulgin, head of the Center for Economics and Policy Studies in Istanbul, says the coming together of this coalition is a remarkable event in Turkish politics. One major failure why the opposition was not able to unseat Erdogan in the past related to its failure to act as a united opposition. This time around, uh, the opposition has been able to set up 
a um, large coalition that includes six different political parties. The coalition is supporting veteran politician Kamal Kalichdarola for president, but it's made up of nationalist and pro-Kurdish parties and others not normally allies. That's led to some growing pains. Morel Actioner, the head of the most conservative party in the coalition, bolted from the alliance last month before two other members convinced her to return. Ulgin says that's not surprising given the broad differences among the parties in the coalition. This is inherently a difficult exercise because you have parties with different political philosophies. And in that sense, it's quite a unique experiment in Turkish politics. Having said that, they've also been able to draft quite a comprehensive policy platform. The coalition platform emphasizes rule of law and seeks to weaken the office of the presidency. Not surprisingly, President Erdogan has nothing good to say about the coalition. In an interview with a state television news channel, he said there's a hidden seventh party in the coalition, a pro-Kurdish party, which the government says supports Kurdish militants who have been battling security forces for decades. Let's call this a table of seven, not six. It's missing one. Where is the obvious party? As I always say, it's under the table. Other observers say this coalition has taken on a hugely important task, namely trying to reverse what critics see as Turkey's slide toward authoritarianism under Erdogan. Analyst Soli Özel, a lecturer at Istanbul's Kadir Has University, says that's the question Turkish voters should be thinking about in this 100th year of the modern Turkish Republic. This year we celebrate the centennial of the Turkish Republic, founded on Enlightenment principles by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and his colleagues and whether or not Turkey will continue on the secular modernizing path or will it actually be increasingly religious conservatism, Islamization. In a few weeks, the opposition will learn if it has the votes it needs to launch a post-Erdogan era in Turkish politics. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The Super Mario Brothers movie has been the number one film in the United States for three straight weeks. Now, a song from the movie is on the pop charts. Peaches, 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 peaches. entered the Billboard Hot 100 at number 83. Whenever you say something like that, I want to talk like Casey Kasem. Anyway, it's actor and comedian Jack Black moving up the chart. His first solo entry on that chart, Black plays a villainous turtle named Bowser in the animated film. And the plot, such as it is, has Bowser attempting to win the hand and heart of Princess Peach. Stephen Thompson of NPR Music saw this movie. And at one point, the filmmakers just kind of turned the spotlight over to Jack Black, and they had him perform this song where you've basically just got Bowser sitting at a piano and wailing about his love of Princess Peach. Princess Peach at the end of the line I'll make you mine Jack Black is committed. He is coming at you full blast this entire song and I think that's a huge part of the fun. I'm not sure it's necessarily like a great song so much as it is a really winning performance. The entertainment news website Consequence asks could this be the song of the summer? Thompson says stranger things have happened. Peach, you're so cool. 
And with my okay, that's great. You know, my kids, A, have all been to yep. see this at separate times, and they come home and they try to tell me the whole plot. I can't follow it at all. I'm just glad it's not Princess Jackfruit. That'd be harder to sing. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Let's listen to a bit more. Peaches, 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 peaches. This is NPR News. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, downtowns are struggling across the U.S. We visit a city in Virginia that may be a model for how to turn things around. It's 819. All right, so you hit snooze one too many times. You can't find your keys, but Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington. WaterstoneLexington.com. And Live Nation presenting Rafi and his Beluga grads live at the Orpheum on May 7th. Proceeds benefit the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring. LiveNation.com. We're starting out with a little fog this morning. It'll be partly sunny today with a high of 56. There's a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, another slight chance of showers as temperatures fall to a low of 42. Tomorrow, about the same as today. Partly sunny and a high of 55 with a chance of showers in the late afternoon. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 820. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with The Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Danville, Virginia is the latest city working to revitalize its downtown. A lot of big cities have recovered in the last 25 years as old center cities refilled with global businesses and hipsters and so forth. For smaller cities, the results have been mixed, with some of them quite lively and others less so. Danville is an older city of just over 40,000 people with old industries, tobacco and textiles. Diana Schwartz of a local group called the River District Association says the city declined when those industries did. 
roads and sidewalks and buildings began to crumble, quite frankly, you know, as people began to move out of the downtown and move their businesses out of the downtown. Danville began to turn things around in 2017 with simple fixes. Things like sidewalk repair, road repair, plumbing, uh, sewer, internet, utilities, things that may not seem quite so sexy, but these are very important things if you're going to begin to have investors look at your community seriously to begin development. Yes, you would like to know that the sewers are up to code. Next up was getting residents back. And so there was a conversion of many of our former tobacco warehouse buildings into beautiful and very affordable lofts in the downtown. Oh, I've seen this in a bunch of cities. Rochester, New York now has office towers that are apartment buildings. The final piece here was attracting businesses such as Fashion House owned by Kelly Cunningham. Fashion House is a creative agency. Within the creative agency, we focus on model development. And Cunningham says the support she got from that organization, the River District Association, helped her succeed and her small Black-owned business is helping Danville thrive again. Small businesses now are not what they used to look like when I was growing up. There are so many different small businesses that can make a downtown complete. Now, what we're describing is an approach laid out by Main Street America, which is a national organization. Danville is one of the winners of this year's Great American Main Street Award. Whether you be a town, a small town of any size, or even a larger city that has uh, distinct commercial corridors, there is a way for the program to work for everyone, even if you only utilize certain bits and parts. And in that way, smaller cities are hoping to follow the revivals of the big ones. New research shows that one of the most common infections in women is linked to our food supply. Urinary tract infections cost about $2 billion each year to treat and lead to more than 1 million emergency room visits a year. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey. If you've had a UTI, you're in good company. About 60% of women will develop a urinary tract infection in their lifetime, and doctors who treat them have long known that E. coli causes many of the infections. But there are so many strains of the bacteria, and what has been unknown is which ones can cause infection, and perhaps more importantly, where these strains come from. We set out to do a really systematic investigation of this. That's Lance Price, a professor at George Washington University Milken School of Public Health. He says when farm animals are slaughtered, bacteria from their guts can contaminate meat and lead to foodborne illness. He and his collaborators set out to identify the strains of E. coli on meat sold in one town, Flagstaff, Arizona, over the course of a year. We sampled all the chicken, turkey, and pork from every grocery store in the city twice per month. Back in their laboratory, they cultured E. coli bacteria from these meat samples and performed DNA sequencing. During the same time, they also collected urine samples from the Flagstaff Medical Center from people who'd been hospitalized with a UTI. Paul Keim is a co-author of the study and the executive director of the Pathogen and Microbiome Institute at Northern Arizona University. The genomic analysis allowed us to match up a number of different strains. And so the, the biggest result is that, yeah, there's lots of E. coli strains out there that cause UTIs, and you can get them through the food supply. An estimated 8% of UTIs in Flagstaff could be attributed to the meat. And nationwide, these scientists estimate that as many as 640,000 urinary tract infections each year are linked to farm animals. Tim Johnson is a professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota. He studies poultry diseases and genomics. 
when I first saw the data, I was pretty overwhelmed at the connectivity. Johnson says the study doesn't prove cause and effect between every UTI and animal E. coli. There are indirect ways E. coli can move from animals' guts into the food supply. For instance, the bacteria can get into irrigation water and contaminate crops. And not all E. coli is dangerous, but the new study points to two strains of E. coli that have particularly high virulence. Johnson says understanding this better gives farmers the opportunity to vaccinate their animals to prevent the problem. So if they're finding that problematic strain that's killing chickens or turkeys, but also could be a food safety threat, they can try making their own vaccines basically against any strain that they find on a farm. Doctors who treat urinary tract infections say women are more likely to get them, in part due to female anatomy. E. coli can get to the urinary tract easier after wiping, and what's happening in their sex lives can play a role, too. People who get recurrent UTIs are often given prevention tips, such as taking cranberry or other supplements. But Michelle Van Kuyken, a urologist at UC San Francisco, says sometimes these prevention strategies don't work. To some extent, women have been done a disservice by, you know, them thinking it's something they're doing wrong or things that they can modify. UTIs involve a complex interplay of bacteria, our microbiomes, immune systems, and anatomy. And Van Kuyken says better understanding the factors beyond our personal control, including the possible role of farm animals in the food supply, is helpful. The most important thing is that we're seeing this connection and we need to be cognizant about how large-scale animal agriculture could be impacting human health. At a time when antibiotic use has led to more resistant bacteria, connecting the dots and better understanding all the different strains, where they come from, and whether they're harmful could be beneficial. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR News. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, we look at what's next for Sudan after several ceasefires between rival military factions failed and international leaders pulled their diplomats out. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at riversidecc.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Jury selection begins today in Pennsylvania in the trial of Robert Bowers. He's charged with killing 11 people and wounding seven others at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. The attack occurred in 2018. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports. 
The 50-year-old truck driver faces charges that include hate crimes resulting in death. Bowers offered to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence, but his request was denied. One of his attorneys is Judy Clark. She represented the Unabomber and the Boston Marathon bomber, among others. The trial has been delayed by pretrial motions and the coronavirus pandemic. The U.S. Supreme Court is leaving in place for now access to the abortion medication Mifepristone. Legal experts say a challenge to the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the pill more than 20 years ago could end up before the nation's high court again as early as next year. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports on the findings of a poll from NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and Marist. 64% of respondents said that they are against laws that ban access to a medication abortion. And that includes actually a majority of Republicans. That might tell you why there's been such a big split among Republicans on this issue. 61% of respondents believe a judge should not be able to overturn an FDA approval. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's a new safety head at the state's Transportation Department. Governor Maura Healey announced Patrick Lavin will be the agency's new chief safety officer. Lavin steps into a new position created by Healey after holding a similar post in Washington, D.C. Lavin will deal with safety issues, including on the T, bus lines, and commuter rail. He'll report to the new MBTA general manager, Phil Eng. Massachusetts correction officials are seeking more state funds to help prisoners transition once they're released from state custody. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, they say the money will help prevent prisoners from reoffending. State Correction Commissioner Carol Meachie says expanding programming to help with so-called re-entry will reduce the rate at which people end up back behind bars. The department needs to do better before people walk out the door. And the best way to reduce recidivism and make somebody successful on the outside is through education. Governor Maura Healey's proposed budget includes $10 million for prisoner reentry and education efforts. Advocates for prisoners say even more is needed. Last year, more than 2,000 people were released from state prisons. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. Local business groups are fighting a proposal to move the state lottery online. After the approval of online sports betting, state officials say digital lottery sales are necessary to attract more players. The Boston Globe reports the Retailers Association of Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Package Stores Association are lobbying against the plan. The groups say the move would hurt brick-and-mortar retail. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors. Available at MuzzinAudio.com. Boston sports teams are celebrating a series of wins. The Celtics defeated the Hawks last night 129-121. That gives the Seas a 3-1 lead in the playoff series. They're back at the Garden tomorrow for Game 5. The Bruins are also leading in their playoff series against the Florida Panthers. The Bees won last night on the road by four goals. And the Red Sox finished strong in their series against Milwaukee. They beat the Brewers last night 12-5. The team starts another road series tonight in Baltimore. In your forecast, mostly cloudy and mid-50s today. There's a slight chance of rain late this afternoon and this evening. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s. Then tomorrow, a repeat of today. We'll have mostly cloudy skies and mid-50s with a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 834. You're with WBR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez at KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. I- I've been, yes. been away a few days. Uh, I have heard about the clashes in Sudan, but can you catch me up on why armed groups are fighting there? Sure, yeah. It goes back a few years. Uh, Essentially, the country has two armed forces. One is the regular army. The other is a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces. They worked together in a military coup a couple of years ago, but now they disagree over a plan to merge them, part of a transition to civilian rule. Mm. So the paramilitary forces, the RSF, they're attacking the government, which is why we've been watching efforts to evacuate diplomats and others who want out. Okay, thanks for the basics. So now we're ready for an update from NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu, who has been covering this from his in Lagos. Welcome back. Good morning, Steve. All right. U.S. Embassy staff have been airlifted out of Khartoum, the capital. What about other Americans? Well, there are about 16,000 Americans registered in Sudan. The State Department says it's assisting these citizens who are trying to flee. Uh, we think largely with up-to-date information and advice on routes out of Khartoum and the country. And we're seeing other countries, many other countries, ramp up their evacuations. Many people, especially foreign nationals, are trying to get to Port Sudan on the Red Sea. That's a transit point out of the country. But many of them have to get there on their own. The U.S. evacuations we saw this weekend were for government staff and their families, about under 100 people who were airlifted out of Khartoum. It was a very precarious operation overnight by U.S. military, of course, in the midst of this ongoing conflict. You mentioned people going to Port Sudan, uh, which is, of course, on the water, which Khartoum, the capital, is not. Airlines are not an option at this point or any kind of civilian or military flights out of that Khartoum airport. Do people have to go overland to get out? Yes, flights are not an option. The airspace is shut. And so that is not an option for people who are trying to leave the country right now. Okay, so people who get out of Khartoum have to go overland. Countries are evacuating their staff in various ways that they can. How are people feeling who are left behind? Everyone who can is trying to leave the capital Khartoum. That's the epicenter of this awful conflict. But there are also complicated feelings. You know, with these evacuations and the closure of a number of foreign embassies, there's clearly this fear that at a perilous moment, countries are retreating from Sudan. Mm. And these are countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and others who backed the transition and trusted these warring parties to give up power for a democratic process. And of course, this process has completely unraveled with neither the army or the RSF backing down. What we know at the moment is about 400 people at least have been killed, thousands injured, according to the UN. It's been just over a week since this conflict erupted, and the speed of collapse has been shocking. The health system has been hit hard. At least 11 facilities have been attacked. Most have shut down. People are either sheltering at home with no power, running out of food, or are trying to leave. You know, many resistance groups, community groups are helping people trying to escape 
20,000 people have fled to Chad. Mm. The internet coverage in Sudan has dropped to just a few percent of normal levels. So our sense of what's happening in the country is diminishing. And of course, there's no sign of a ceasefire between the two warring parties. Yeah, and when you talk about complicated feelings, I'm imagining those 16,000 U.S. citizens, many of them, of course, would have family connections, close connections. They built their lives in Sudan. It would be hard to walk away. But is there danger of a full-scale civil war here? You know, there are a number of international actors, local militia, that have a stake in this. So far, this is not a civil war, but the longer this goes on, there's the danger that it could become one. NPR's Emmanuel Akinmoto, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. On October 27, 2018, 11 people worshipping at a synagogue in Pittsburgh were gunned down. Among them, 97-year-old Rose Mallinger, the oldest victim, Friends have said that despite her age, she was vibrant with a wonderful spirit. Rose's story will be one of many that people remember today as jury selection begins in the federal trial for the man charged with killing her and 10 other Jewish worshipers. From member station WESA, Kylie Kaczynski spoke with survivors who are bracing for having to relive that day. Robert Bowers faces more than 60 federal charges, including hate crimes and obstruction of religious beliefs. The trial could go on for months as a jury decides whether to recommend the death penalty. That means the survivors of the three congregations, Tree of Life, Dor Hadash, and New Light, will have to endure an anguish that could last through the summer. These families are still navigating their grief, and it's impossible to know how the trial will intensify that. We need to be there. That's Dean Root. He was heading into Shabbat services when the attack began. But we can't put ourselves through a living hell of being in a trial situation every day for months because that's not healthy. Dean plans to be patient with himself on the days he can't bear to be in the courtroom. Pittsburgh's Jewish Community Center has been a space for a wide range of different therapies for survivors and the larger Jewish community. From talk therapy to group sessions, even nature walks in city parks, Dean joins those walks often. Soaking in nature you know, being mindful of the space you're in, in a different way than we do when we're very busy people going about our daily lives, you know. And uh, it's just, it transports you. Continuing to practice Judaism in the face of this and other anti-Semitic attacks has been another lifeline. Dean and his wife Dora sing hymns like Hine Matov, a song about how good it is to be surrounded by siblings in faith. Staying faithful is important to Carol Black, too. She was attending services at New Light Congregation when the shooting began at the synagogue. After hiding in a closet from the gunfire, she survived. Her brother Richard Godfrey did not. Carol says she never stopped attending services and has taken on more responsibilities within the congregation since the shooting. It's her way of honoring her brother, Richard, who is very active in New Light. I think that that's what my brother would have wanted me to do and would have expected me to do, and really to pick up the slack where he's not there to do it anymore. Leaders at the Jewish Community Center say there's no one way to find healing. A regular drum circle meets at the facility to bang on a drum or tambourine and sing together. But most importantly, survivors say they'll seek support from each other to get through the next few months. 
Carol and Dean say they've been leaning on the other members of this tragic club for more than four years now. We started meeting one month after the shooting, and we've been meeting every month since then. And we take so much support from each other. The start of the trial will be re-traumatizing for the families of Tree of Life, Dor Hadash, and New Light. They say though they'll be deep in uncharted waters, their souls will be steadied by the anchor of the bond they share with each other. I didn't know any of these people before this, and it has been of invaluable. Uh, it's just such a resource that I don't know how I would live without it. For NPR News, I'm Kylie Kaczynski in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we have a review of Apple's new standalone streaming service for classical music. More clouds than sun today and temperatures in the mid-50s. We may see some showers late this afternoon and maybe early this evening. Low 40s tonight, then tomorrow, about the same as today. Mostly cloudy mid-50s and a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. A Needham Healthcare company will pay over $2 million in fines after buying and using Botox that was not labeled for sale in the U.S. The U.S. Attorney's Office says Greater Boston Behavioral Health bought the illegal Botox because it was cheaper. It did not have prescription-only labeling or side effect warnings required by the Food and Drug Administration. A popular Waltham brewery plans to expand into Boston's Fenway neighborhood. The new location of Mighty Squirrel Brewing will be used to brew small batches of beer. It'll also have a full kitchen. The owners expect the new location to open in the fall. It's 844. More than 2,100 people may be fraudulently working as nurses across the U.S. after allegedly buying fake degrees. When we talk about a nurse's education and credentials, shortcut is not a word we want to use. I'm Elsa Chang, how the scandal is sending shockwaves through the nursing community. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. For years, classical music fans have been left behind in the streaming revolution. Finding particular works and recordings has been hit or miss on the major platforms, which were basically built to search for an artist's name and a song title. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siulkas reports Apple is the latest streaming service to take a serious swing at Bach, Beethoven, and Bartok. Say I want to find a great recording of Beethoven's grand and glorious Symphony No. 9. On any streaming platform, I get back hundreds and sometimes thousands of results. Some of them are right on. And some are, well, not exactly what I'm looking for. The first match YouTube pulls up for me, for example, is not a symphony. It's not even music by Beethoven. Instead, it's solo piano music written by Chopin. And if you just can't find a particular recording or piece of music, well, it functionally ceases to exist in the marketplace. Frustrated classical fans were driven to specialty apps and platforms, but they did not reach most consumers. Two years ago, Apple bought a company called Primephonic and built their new service on Primephonic's bones. Fundamentally, the thing about this app is it is trying to do something that has not been done adequately before and do it really well, which is deliver an excellent customer experience, listening experience for classical music lovers. It's made for classical music lovers by classical music lovers. That's Jonathan Gruber, who heads classical for Apple Music. He says that as of launch, his company has more classical music available than any other streaming service. We have a database which has 20,000 composers, more than 100,000 unique works, 300,000 movements, 5 million tracks, 50 million data points in order to make this happen. We reached out repeatedly to Spotify, the biggest platform in music streaming, to ask for their comparable stats, but did not receive any response. Apple Classical isn't perfect. If you use an Android phone, you're still out of luck, at least for now. The much-vaunted metadata listing soloists and other performers is sometimes missing. Apple's curated playlists tilt much more Classical 101 than Deep Dive Delights. And it's a standalone experience, disconnected from the rest of Apple Music. So it's hard for fans who generally listen to other genres to fall down any classical rabbit holes. In the meantime, though, several prominent venues and ensembles seem to be betting on Apple. The service features exclusive content from Carnegie Hall, the Berlin Philharmonic, and the London Symphony Orchestra, among others. Can Apple succeed with classical music fans when so many other services have failed? That's an open question but at least one of the biggest players in streaming is finally paying attention. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
This is WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report talks to a mathematician who has proven that cryptocurrency transactions aren't anonymous. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to ramp up jobs for kids this summer. She's put a $4.25 billion budget in front of the city council and in the meantime, closed Canal Street for the NHL and NBA playoff games. What else is on her agenda? We'll find out. It's Monday with Mayor Michelle Wu on Radio Boston, today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Jury selection begins today for the trial of a man accused of killing 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. Americans, including a Massachusetts mother and toddler, are stuck in Sudan even after the U.S. evacuated diplomats and staff from the war-torn country. And at least 10 Bed Bath & Beyond locations in Massachusetts are expected to close as the retailer declares bankruptcy. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Mid-50s today under mostly cloudy skies. There's a slight chance we may see some showers late this afternoon and this evening. Low 40s tonight, then tomorrow, a mostly cloudy day in the mid-50s with a chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 47 degrees in Boston at 851. You know, investigators can track what you do with cryptocurrency now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant automatically takes live meeting notes, captures slides, generates summaries, and assigns action items. More at Otter.ai. And by SoFi, the all-in-one app where members can bank, borrow, and invest. Get your money right at SoFi.com. SoFi Bank N.A. Investment Services through SoFi Securities, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, new and used vehicles are easier to find this year with supply chains largely restored after the pandemic mess. But now a new hurdle. The loan may be harder to get. Ally Financial is one lender saying it plans to tighten standards. And Wells Fargo said it's setting aside extra cash in case more existing auto loans go bad. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more on what is driving this. Lenders are worried that rising interest rates are making their loans too expensive. If people's payments get much higher because of the interest rates, then the lender's going to be worried about defaults. Kathleen Engel is a professor at Suffolk University Law School. She says lenders are also worried that if a recession happens, some borrowers might lose their jobs. So they're raising rates further to compensate for the risk, and they're making fewer loans. If lenders are concerned that the higher payments are going to lead to higher default rates, they want to stop the problem before it exists. Lenders are pulling back the most in the used car market, says Jonathan Smoke, chief economist at Cox Automotive. 
He says that's because a lot of people who bought used cars in the last couple of years are already starting to fall behind on their payments. And the consumers that tend to be more likely to fall behind are subprime consumers, which also tend to be median to lower income households. And they, Smoke says, have disproportionately felt the effects of inflation. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. Credit markets are just one topic we explore in our Marketplace Crash Course, Econ 101. It's a primer on economics, a newsletter for which you can sign up at any time and complete at your own pace. You can find that online at marketplace.org slash crash course. Forecasters say there's a strong chance that the weather phenomenon known as El Nino could return later this year. El Nino generally makes things warmer still, and with what climate change has been doing, it's possible 2023 or 24 could become the globe's hottest year on record. Marketplace's Henry Epp has more on economic costs. El Nino has a lot of effects, says Justin Mankin, an assistant professor of geography at Dartmouth College. Things like droughts and floods and wildfire conditions, uh, those get enhanced with El Nino's. It also raises the possibility of more extreme heat in some parts of the globe, and those hot days are expensive. Mankin and a colleague estimated the dollar cost of the hottest days of the year between the early 90s and 2013. At the low end, $5 trillion, and at the upper end, uh, nearly $30 trillion globally. There's business interruption, there are health impacts, there are infrastructure impacts. Kathy Boffman-McLeod is with the Atlantic Council. She says businesses should prepare for the heat. Get educated, get aware, um, and do a heat risk assessment for your employees and for your operations. That means learning where heat could impact your supply chain, she says, and protecting workers. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Checking markets about half an hour here before the opening bell. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down about a tenth of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. I used to refer to cryptocurrency as money laundering on a stick. While digital money, using a very hard-to-corrupt accounting system, has its uses, it's also a useful way for crooks to hide money without a trace, or so the crooks thought. Now a mathematician in California has done groundbreaking work that has given birth to a new industry tracking cryptocurrency. Dina Temple-Raston, host of the Click Here podcast on cybersecurity matters, reports. When Sarah Micklejohn first discovered cryptocurrency, she was a grad student in computer science at University of California, San Diego. In the beginning, we all just were kind of like, whoa, Bitcoin, like what's anyone doing with it? This was back in 2013. Bitcoin transactions are represented by a meaningless string of characters. And Micklejohn believed that once a transaction touched the real world, that meaninglessness would just go away. I kind of knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Bitcoin was not anonymous. And it turns out you could figure out a lot by seeing how transactions are related to each other. At its simplest level, if a string of Bitcoin characters is initiating lots of crypto transactions and another string or wallet is receiving them, that gives you a relationship to work with. 
So Michael John decided to prove that in an unusual way, by shopping. Stefan still has a lot of the physical artifacts. Stefan Savage, her thesis advisor. I mean, I can show you. Do you want to see some of them? I'd love to. So, like, we have a Guy Fox mask, very on brand for the time. Some earrings. And then organic Colombian coffee beans. They were paying for these things in crypto to watch the transactions go from buyer to seller. It was... I need to get a purchase from some wallet in this cluster that my algorithm has identified. Let me go and see things that are likely to get me there. What Michael John didn't know at the time was that a man named Michael Groninger had read her research paper, and he was writing an algorithm that would allow him to trace transactions at scale. And he used that algorithm to figure out where a bunch of stolen Bitcoin had gone when a crypto exchange called Mt. Gox went bankrupt in 2014. He eventually turned all this into the company Chainalysis. So you've automated it? Yes, you automated it. So I could see an automated pattern. It's running all the time, basically. Now he's using it to help financial institutions and governments track stolen money and identify bad players in the crypto world. I'm Dina Temple-Raston for Marketplace. And one of the most powerful American media executives is out. Jeff Schell was CEO of NBC Universal. Schell indicates it was an inappropriate relationship with a woman at the company. Also, the chief editor of the German magazine Die Aktuelle is being fired after the magazine ran a fake interview generated by artificial intelligence. Former German race car driver Michael Schumacher doesn't give interviews these days after a terrible skiing accident years ago. So the magazine thought they would generate one from an AI instead. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.